All right, as they enthusiastically make their way out, I want to encourage the rest of us to enthusiastically make our way to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll continue our series, A Better Way, and this morning we're speaking about the witness of a Christian marriage. As you're standing, we'll read uh, beginning with verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. The witness of a Christian marriage. Paul, writing the church at Ephesus, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, we thank you that though it sometimes challenges us to live radically different than this world. We thank you that you have given us a better way when it comes to the subject of marriage and family. And I pray that today that the Holy Spirit of God will take the insights from your word and drill them into our hearts and our minds that they might change our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, last week we looked at the whole subject of courtship and dating and preparation, and we were asking the question, how can we prepare the next generation for marriage? And it certainly lays a foundation for this message today. So if you missed the message last Sunday, I would encourage you to go to our website and pull that message up and listen to it and get kind of caught up in our study of this subject, A Better Way, together. But now we're going to move toward the subject of marriage. And I have a uh, picture, or several pictures, that I printed because I did not have access to these catalogs myself. But on this picture that you can't see very well from where you're seated, uh, other than a lot of beautiful colors, on this picture is the catalog cover from the uh, Burpee Seed Company. Uh, It's their their front cover of every catalog going back to 1987. And when I look at this picture, I see what the seeds that they're selling are supposed to produce. There are beautiful pictures of tomatoes and sunflowers, squash, cantaloupe, green beans. Beautiful pictures that you find in a catalog. The problem is, if I go and I purchase these seeds or I order these seeds, what comes up in the garden doesn't always look like the picture. 
And one author has said that courtship and all of the preparation to marriage is kind of like looking at the catalog. Marriage, however, is what actually comes up in the garden. And often what the pictures do not show you is all of the hard work that has to be invested to see the beautiful marriage become a reality. Last week I briefly mentioned the biblical purposes of marriage and said we need to understand those before we enter this process of courtship and preparing for marriage. We spoke of companionship, procreation, intimacy, and ultimately, and this is where we will kind of spend our time today, that marriage is a, a small picture of the big picture. Marriage is a witness to the glory of God, and it pictures in the Old Testament God's covenant relationship with Israel in the New Testament, Christ and his church. And I made a revolutionary comment. I said, you're not ready to date and enter this process of courtship until you can articulate the purpose of dating and courtship as it leads and prepares one for marriage. But when that day comes, and for most of us here it has, and for many more it will come about one day, when that day comes when someone says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he says her mother and I, or the father says her mother and I, and then later when the pastor looks at the groom and says, do you take this woman? And to the bride and asks, do you take this man? And they both say, I do. The gardening process really begins. And I want to make a statement from the very beginning of this message. If you heard last week's message, marriage, God's way, the better way, will sound even more radical and more revolutionary than courtship and dating and preparing for marriage sounded when we do that God's way. This moment is becoming very unpopular today, the moment where where a man and a woman come together and say, we do take one another as a lawfully wedded husband and wife. As a matter of fact, the Pew Research Association came out with a statement last week that reminded us that only 51% of adults in America today are actually married. And to me, that's astounding that of every adult that you meet, only one out of two are married. About half of the adults you will meet in the world today are in the United States today are single. And so just the concept of marriage has become unpopular. And the concept of marriage... If the practice of marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime, if that has become unpopular today, how much more has the concept of biblical marriage become unpopular? We're going to mention three words that are in this text this morning. When it comes to the witness of a Christian marriage, we're going to mention three words this morning that have become so increasingly unpopular that even pastors fail to mention the words 
at a wedding or in a message like this. Now, let me say this. I'm a, I'm a biblicist, not a prag, uh, pragmatist. Why, why would I point out that I'm a biblicist, not a pragmatist? The point is, I share what the Scriptures teach because I believe it's God's revelation to us, and God says, I have something better for you. And I believe we should embrace it because our Creator says, this is what you were designed for. However, having said that, I know that there are a lot of folks in the world today that will say, you know, you need to do things God's way because it just works. It works better. But listen, whether or not someone's way seems to work or not, we need to go back to the authority of Scripture, the revelation that Christ has given us, and we need to embrace it because it's God's standard for us. Now, having said that, do I believe that it works? Yes, absolutely. I believe it works marvelously, and I want to encourage you this morning, if you want marriage at its best, then embrace God's way of doing marriage. And so let's mention these three words this morning because these three words describe the witness of a Christian marriage. And these three words, as I have said, have become very unpopular, so this may even sound radical or revolutionary to some of you. The first word is the word submission. So we want to see marriage, God's way, as a witness of submission. Look at verse 522. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As I mentioned a moment ago, in the Old Testament, Israel was the bride of God, and they were to submit to God, and marriage pictured that relationship between God and Israel. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. And we're reminded in this text that the wife in the marriage context becomes a picture, a small picture of the big picture in her submission to her husband's leadership in the home. Together, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints in heaven will make up the bride of God, the bride of Christ. Together we will make up the New Jerusalem. And in Revelation chapter 21, we read these words, Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls, filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great and a high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal, this beautiful bride of God. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, one day there's going to be a day that we form, we make up this new Jerusalem that comes down as, as the bride of God to live through all eternity with him. But while we're in this life, while we live this life on earth as the people of God, as witnesses of Christ, as ambassadors of Christ, the family, the Christian family, is to model this covenant relationship between Christ and his church. And the role of the wife in that witness is that of the church itself. She was created from the very beginning to be a helper suitable to her husband. We read that in Genesis chapter 2. The responsibility of the bride is to respond to the groom and to work in partnership with her husband. This submission is a form of respect. We know that because in verse 33, when he summarizes this whole statement about the husband giving himself to his wife, he concludes with, let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Now, men, let's not forget verse 21 in Ephesians chapter 5. Before we begin to preach submission too strong to our wives, it says, submitting to one another in the fear of God, that as a Christian, as brothers and sisters in Christ, there needs to be a submission to one another. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that in humility or lowliness of mind, we should consider others better than ourselves. So we're always concerned and we're always caring about God's best for one another. And the responsibility for the home is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, which tells us that not only is the head of the woman the man, but the head of man should be Christ, and there is even submission in the Godhead in that Christ was subject as God the Son to God the Father. And so, ladies, before you say, now, wait a minute, if you teach that a wife should submit to her husband, then you're teaching that, he is not e- that she is not equal with her husband. But that's about as ludicrous as teaching that because God the Son submitted to God the Father, that he was not equal with God the Father. He was, in essence, God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They were one. They were equal as two persons of the Godhead, but so was the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now, as God the Son submits to God the Father, yet they are equal in one, so the wife submits to her own husband as unto the Lord. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church and the Savior of the body. Now, I know that there are some ladies who are saying, man, that's fantastic. That's wonderful as long as your husband is a Christian. As long as your husband loves the Lord Jesus Christ and and leads according to the word of God. But I want you to hear these words out of 1 Peter in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, They, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So what that says, ladies, is even if your husband is an unbeliever, even if he doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to win him, you're not going to influence him, you're not going to change him by finding a 35-pound Schofield reference Bible and whopping him upside the head and telling him, get right or get left, and I'm not going to listen to you until you start walking with God. But her gracious submission to his leadership in the home provides him with an accountability and a grace and a love that points him because it serves as a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this does not believe, uh, this does not teach, uh, according to what I believe, that, that a woman should always submit to her husband when what he commands her to do is in total defiance to the things of God. You might say, well, pastor, where do you get that principle? Well, I believe this, that God establishes systems of authority in this world, beginning with the home. And from what I understand in Scripture, even in Romans chapter 13, we're to submit to governing authorities. And so that means the governments of the various nations around the world come up with laws, and if we want to live in a society that works, then we need to be obedient. We need to submit ourselves to those laws. But there are times that we practice what is called civil 
disobedience. There are times where the government may tell us to do something that would make us defy biblical principle, the standards and the precepts of God. And so if the law were to tell me, do not preach Romans chapter 1, then I would have to defy the law and accept the consequences. In Acts chapter 5, when the disciples were told, the apostles were told to no longer preach in the name of Jesus Christ, in Acts 5, 20, 29, Peter responds, Listen, you determine for yourself whether it is right for us to obey God rather than man. The disciples explained, we can't help but preach this gospel that we've been commissioned to preach. What were they saying? They were, they were saying there were times that we have to practice civil disobedience and do what God tells us to do. So I do believe that because the men, ladies, are supposed to be under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, that sometimes they may get out from under that umbrella of authority and command their wives to do something that is immoral, ungodly, unbiblical, that the wife can say, I cannot submit to that. It may be in order to protect themselves or even protect their own family. But unless it contradicts Scripture, see, that does not mean, ladies, okay, well, my husband doesn't want me to buy this dress, but I believe God wants me to have it. My husband didn't want me to buy these shoes, but I believe God wants me to have it. When it's in direct defiance of Scripture, then we're to obey God rather than man. Now, this type of submission will be against the desire of the flesh. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that the desire of the woman as part of living in a sinful world will be to, to take the place of her husband when it comes to spiritual leadership in the home. Men will struggle with the temptation of Adam to be passive, to be irresponsible, to live for the moment instead of living for eternity. And by the way, that's why Paul addressed Timothy by saying, listen, in the church, I do not permit a woman to be in a position of spiritual authority as the, or as the continual pastor-teacher over the men in the church. And you may say, well, well, he said that because it had to do with a culture. It just wasn't culturally acceptable in that day. Paul and Jesus were revolutionaries. They were never concerned with the teachings of culture. And he goes on to say, for man was created first. He was to lead with the word of God. He was given the word of God, do not eat from this tree, before the woman was even created. And then when she was created, he was passive and irresponsible, and there in the garden, she took of the tree. Adam was there with her. And God basically, in Genesis chapter 3, says, Adam... Your, your sin got us into this, but you're going to lead out of this situation. The second Adam, Jesus, came along and did the right thing. And so there's a principle here of spiritual leadership in the home that the Scripture says don't even usurp that by switching the roles around in the church. Others will still argue, well, you're saying that men and women then are not equal before God, and that is not the case. I've illustrated it many occasions by speaking in, in football language that just because the quarterback is ultimately responsible to call the play, it doesn't make him the most valuable player. 
it doesn't mean that he is better than anybody else on the team. If the quarterback has to call an audible, it doesn't mean that he's more valuable than the tight end. But if the tight end doesn't listen to him, if he doesn't have that authority, then the whole team is in trouble. The quarterback may not be more valuable than the tailback, but he's got to be the one that ultimately calls the play, and the rest of the team need to be, needs to be on the same page, and the quarterback himself had better be in tune with the coach and listening to those that are in authority over him. Why does a 60-year-old CEO listen to the directions of a 25-year-old law enforcement officer? It's because, not because the law enforcement officer is more valuable than the 60-year-old CEO, it's because somebody has to have the authority and somebody has to make the call and somebody has to give direction. Men may be saying this morning, well, I'm doing my best, but she won't follow my lead. Well, I think we then need to consider the second unpopular word in this text. So not only we see this word submission that everybody kind of wants to throw out and not even bring it up in wedding vows anymore, we want to get rid of this word called sacrifice. Sacrifice. The witness of sacrifice. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially, giving of themselves. So in verse 25... Paul writes, husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ also loved the church. And what did he do to the church? He gave himself. He went to a cross. He died completely, physically. He died to self. He died to this world. He died to everything for the sake of the church, the bride of Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And Romans 5.8 says that Christ demonstrated, God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so often we we find men complaining, my wife won't follow my leadership when they are not giving themselves sacrificially for their wives and for their family. He explains this in verse 28. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of the flesh, and of his bones. And then he says, for this reason a man shall leave his father, quoting from Genesis, and mother, and be joined unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's sacrifice. There's a willingness there to leave the old life. Leave his father and mother. Leave his old life. And be everything that God's called him to be to his wife. And to, and to give himself completely to his bride, they shall be joined, and the two become one. And then he was to lead with the word of God. Now, Jesus modeled this responsibility when he gave himself on the cross for his bride, the church. You think about when Adam and Eve sinned. We talked about this this past Wednesday night in our Bible study. Why did God hold Adam responsible? And men like to point out, well, Eve ate of the fruit first. God held Adam responsible because he was there with her. He had been the one to receive the word before she had even been fashioned out of his own rib. Before she had even been made into existence, God had given Adam the word with which to lead the family with. Do not eat from this tree. And he was there, he was passive, he was irresponsible, he failed to provide the protection and leadership. Now last week I I cautioned that biblical courtship 
is revolutionary. And that you should, if you haven't taught those principles to your children from days that they were young, once they get older, you need to proceed with caution. You need to have a good relationship there and transfer those values through that relationship. Men, if you have not been the spiritual leader in your home, I encourage you to do the same. Lead with caution. Proceed with caution. Because sometimes a man will hear a word like this, and he'll go home, and he'll get in his wife's face and say, everything's going to change. And he's been passive. He's been irresponsible. He hasn't been doing anything God's called him to do. And all of a sudden, he demands that he's going to be in charge. I would say, men, take that responsibility slowly and graciously. You don't want to be like the guy who ended up going home and after the pastor preached a message like this, he came back and he said, I told my wife everything you said and that I'm going to take charge, I'm going to lead. She better listen to everything I say and do what I say. And The pastor said, what happened? He said, I didn't see her for two weeks. And then the swelling went down in my left eye and I could see her just a little bit. No, men, you sacrifice yourself for her greatest needs. First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I mean, it doesn't mean you totally understand her, but you live with her in an understanding way. You understand her greatest needs. Uh, Dr. Willard Harley, an expert on marriage counseling, says that women's uh, women have shared with him their five greatest needs are affection, conversation, honesty, security, and family. So are you giving yourself completely to those needs that your wife has? Give yourself completely to your wife by saying, I am her man and God's man, not just one of the guys anymore. So many young couples struggle with this. Uh, This new marriage comes into being, and still this guy, he might be 24, 30, 40 years old, but rather than after work going home to his family, he wants to go to some bar, he wants to go play pool or work on a car with all the other guys, rather than come come home to his wife and meet her needs. And this destroys so many marriages. It may mean, men, that you need to learn her love language. Gary Chapman has written a wonderful book on the five of love languages. Men, do you know your wife's love language? If you're going to give sacrificially in leading her, it may be gifts and things like flowers and cards. Or her, her love language may be affection. It may be that it's time alone or time away or it may just be acts of service so that one of the most attractive things you can ever do, one of the biggest sacrifices you can ever make for your wife is just cleaning house with her and for her. I heard a lady today, uh, this week on the radio say that her husband is never more attractive than when he's washing the dishes. It may be fixing things, not her problems, but it may be that you're fixing things around the house. And if that's my wife's love language, I'm in a lot of trouble. 
I read where a friend of mine actually wrote these words recently. He said, Ladies, if your husband says he will fix it, he will fix it. You don't have to remind him every six months. What is it that speaks love to them? Give yourself sacrificially to the leadership of your home, of your family. And then finally, let's move into this last word where I believe the husband leads and the wife works in cooperation with her husband in providing, and that is sanctification. There's submission. It's unpopular in the world's eyes, but it's a witness of Christ. There is sacrifice. It's an unpopular word today. Men don't like to sacrifice their time and their resources, especially on behalf of their wife and their children sometimes. But Though it's unpopular, it's a witness of Christ. And then ultimately, the witness of the husband and wife working in cooperation of sanctification and cleansing. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word of God. Verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or anything. It's providing spiritual leadership in the home, men, that leads us to doing Christ's work. And by the way, when we see Christ's work in the life of the church, in, in the cleansing, in the purification of the church, in the sanctification of every Christian, the church works in cooperation with Christ. We join Christ in that work. We say, Lord, we want to be a clean church before you. We want to come and confess our sins, and we want to live according to the Scripture and your standards. So just as the church works in cooperation with Christ, the wife works in cooperation with the husband to sanctify the home. For God says, be holy, for he is holy. And so that's the work of God that's joined by the believer. The husband and wife work together in harmony for holiness in the home. It's work, but it's a work that we're called to. And sometimes it's a work that we do not enjoy primarily because of all the garbage we allow into our lives and allow into our homes here in the 21st century. Why do we never want to clean toilets or clean the trash can? Because of all the junk that goes in the toilets and trash cans, right? I mean, you know what, we, we, don't, we, we don't like to, to take out the trash men and clean out what we still see in the trash can. We like to take out the trash and get another bag in there in a hurry before somebody sees all the garbage that's kind of left behind. Because of all the garbage that goes in, it's a little bit harder to clean. And because of all the garbage that the world wants to dump into our homes today, sanctification is hard work in the home, and it's hard work in our lives. But we're to do that in the way that we lead our families and the husband and wife working in cooperation one with another. Keeping your marriage clean and protected, I believe, leads to raising godly kids without hypocrisy, and kids can see right through hypocrisy. Verse 32, Paul says, listen, all this is a mystery. It's all a mystery, this, this great mystery. I speak concerning, he says, Christ and his church. Remember, marriage, the reason all this stuff it seems so difficult and it's because it's in doing it, it becomes a powerful witness of the relationship between Christ and his church. We're witnessing for Christ in our submission, in our sacrifice, and in our sanctification. 
Paul had the heart of a spiritual father. You may be saying, Pastor, why is all of this so important? Why are you saying this series and last week talking about that message, preparing the next generation for marriage and family? Why are you saying that could be the the outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most important message you could ever preach? Why is it so important for Christian families to be Christian families? Why do you care about what happens in our homes? Listen, here's why I care. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, the apostle Paul writing the church of Corinth. And listen, you talk about a trash can. The city of Corinth was just dumping all kinds of garbage. And by that, I mean moral trash, filth. It was the most sexually and and sinfully immoral city probably in the Roman Empire at that time. And so this teaching would have been revolutionary in, in the city of Corinth, even more so than in the United States in the 21st century. And he says, I'm teaching this. He says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What was the Apostle Paul saying here? The, The Apostle Paul was saying, this is a big deal. And he was saying, I know the devil doesn't want you to hear this. And the principles that I've been preaching and teaching concerning everything from the exclusivity of Christ to morality in the home, he's saying, I'm teaching this because as a spiritual father, because Paul had been their spiritual leader, he says, as a spiritual father, I stand accountable before God one day to present you as children in the faith like a father will do one day when he is asked, who gives this bride, who gives this woman to be joined to this man? And what Paul was implying by that statement is every dad understands his responsibility to do all that he can to protect the purity of his daughter, to fight for the purity of his daughter, to say, if you're going to come to my daughter, you're going to come through me. Because he's doing all that he can to one day when he says, her mother and I, one day when he presents this woman to be married to another man, he can say, I have guarded her purity until this day. And he might, he might present a pure woman to be married to a man. That's the responsibility of a father. And Paul was saying, as your spiritual father, as the apostle who planted this church, and, and it's a burden that I feel as a pastor of this church. Listen, I'm as concerned about the purity of your teenagers as you are, not because I want to get into your business, but because I will stand accountable as a pastor to whether or not I instilled these principles in the lives of the families in this church. That's why Scripture says not many shall desire to be teachers in the church, not many shall desire to be pastor teachers, because theirs is the stricter judgment. And so I will give an account with what I did as a pastor. So not only do you get brokenhearted if your children get into sin and temptation and everything this world has to offer, but I get as brokenhearted for your kids as I do for my own kids. Because we give an account to God one day. But listen, why is it important more than that? Because God has something better. God has a better way. I'm grateful today, as I said last week, that God gave me a wife who loves him 
and loves being a partner in this thing called marriage and ministry with me. And I think life is a blast, even through the bad times and the good times. I think life is a blast when we're doing things God's way. But I want that for everybody. Paul used the word jealous. I'm jealous of that for the entire body of Christ. It's a better way, folks. When we witness by submission, when we witness by sacrifice, and we witness by sanctification, then we are sharing and showing Christ's covenant love to a world that has no concept of covenant love apart from that. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?